Hello and welcome. I'm Fraser Stewart, an applied policy researcher at the University of Strathclyde, making clean energy work actively against poverty and inequality. In each of these climate conversations, a convener, this time that's me, brings together two people to share their perspectives on a particular issue in the climate crisis. For this conversation, we'll focus on climate justice, and I've got two brilliant guests with me as our panel. Charles Badea and Emmanuel Zouza. Charles, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more about where you come from and, and how you've ended up doing what it is that you do today. I am from a favela at the, the state of Minas Gerais in Brazil. Uh, my family used to live in the streets of Belo Horizonte until the 90s and I studied my way into a Brazilian university, which is very hard, <laughs> and I'm um, trying to do the same thing with the climate scene. Excellent, excellent. And Emmanuel, I wonder if we could get a bit more from, from your background as well. I'm originally from Malawi and I grew up from parents who used their proceeds from agriculture production and paid for my university fees. And I've always been interested on the interactions between the environment and different living organisms, and more especially plants. So the conversation that we're having today then is focused on climate justice. Now, obviously, COP26 is coming up. There's a lot of questions around, around how justice will feature there, around who gets to have a say. What does climate justice mean to you? And I think we'll start with Emmanuel. Climate justice should be inclusive. It doesn't matter about race, where somebody comes from, or the region. It should be an all-in-one thing because climate is affecting everyone on the globe. It has to have grassroots level from the people who are marginalized, whom most of the policies imply to, up to the leaders. But also it's very important that we look at engagement and how uh, that can be applied in terms of uh, climate justice and climate talks. Absolutely. Charles, would you, would you add anything to this? Yes, I couldn't agree more with Emmanuel. I believe that climate justice is the concept that solution to climate change should reflect the impact of the climate change. Right now, the persons who are more affected through the emission of carbon do not have participation into decision-making to change this reality. And to make it fair and to make it just, we should make possible for more people to speak their minds. I think it's really interesting that you that you pick up on that, Charles, the, the idea of the people who are most affected. And I know, Emmanuel, you mentioned it too. It's actually, there's an interesting uh, consistency here that, um, so, so my background, I'll, I'll give a little bit more. Um, I'm from quite a sort of deprived, by UK standards, from a, quite a deprived background here. And it's the very same thing. It's the people with the, with the least means. It's the people who are the most affected, whether that's by transitions in, in the workplace, whether that's by flood risk, which is the big issue that we face in Scotland in terms of climate impacts. It's always those people who feel the worst effects that that don't have a seat. So I think while there's obviously the, the big, huge global divide, it's also within countries, there seems to be this, this inequality and in influence. Emmanuel, I know you do lots of work around community engagement. What do you think we're not doing enough of to engage communities and how do you think we can do that better? I think uh, there's a lot we can do in terms of engaging uh, local communities, especially those that are really marginalized. 
Uh, for example, we are talking about COP26, but really are uh, the local communities who are impacted about climate change or even the policies that will be discussed, do they actually know that the conference is happening? Have their views been considered to see what is really affecting them or why they are doing different practices? Because if we don't consider what the marginalized are talking about, then any policy we may come up uh, may not really be impactful and may not be adopted by those marginalized. Charles, feeding off this this engagement idea that, that Emmanuel's speaking to, I know that you've you've been a big advocate for this too, but also something interesting was that you taught yourself English to try and get into these spaces and into these conversations. What do you think some of the, the big barriers are to proper engagement and proper participation? When I was a little kid, my mom used to say that being born black, I would have to work 10 times harder. But how can I work 10 times harder when I am at least 10,000 times delayed? Since I was a kid, I knew that for the color of my skin, I would be given a job that a person who was born 10,000 years ago could be done. And I did not want to do that. And I, I, I feel like this is underutilization of labor and underutilization of my capacity. The, the, the first barrier I had to, to go through was the language barrier. I had to learn English by myself by um, translating stuff on the internet. Um, it's not a knowledge that you cannot have, but it's a knowledge that you have to work way, way harder to get there. And I get very upset when I tell this story and the person I'm telling it praises me for it. It's an, an, a nice achievement for me, but it shouldn't be that way. I, I want to become a Brazilian diplomat, which right now it's the, the second most hard, the, the hardest thing you, want, you can want to do in Brazil, a part of being an astronaut. And I have to study 12 hours a day to become a diplomat. Once my professor, one of my professors learned from it, he praises me. And he said that I was doing wonderfully. And I said to him, but it's not okay that I'm studying 12 hours a day to get at the same place that anyone else would have to study like four. If you really think that it's beautiful, you should and help me pay for my lessons so I don't have to study 12, 12 hours a day. And he'd never contact me again, of course. This barrier, they, they, they have a purpose to exist, is to, to make the high places an elite ground. These decisions should not be making by people like me because there's a lot of money involved into that. For someone to be at the top, someone needs to be on the bottom of it, below, be below them. And if I want to overcome this obstacle, I have to work very hard. It's just the way the things are. So is this more systemic education? This is a, a big thing, particularly where, where you come from to, to access into these spaces. Yeah, and not only regarding language, like a foreign language, but even the, the terms that I use it in, the, in, in climate change. Um, what it's carbon emission, what it means to be net zero carbon emission. You know, how is that important? Does that means it make a difference? 
the people where I came from don't, doesn't know. So how can they take a position and give their opinions and their tests? This knowledge is to be denied it to us. This is another thing, another similarity, I think, uh, when we talk about places like the places I'm from here, it's very much that kind of language is, is very alienated to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people struggle not just to to understand it a lot of the time, but to connect with it emotionally or, or, or socially as well. Emmanuel, is this something that you found in your experience too? Yes, I do agree with what you're saying that I think there's uh, quite a huge barrier when we look at some of the terms and the means of communicating in terms of climate change and climate justice. So I'll give an example in, a, in my country where somebody comes in and says, well, you are cutting down trees, you are leading to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. To somebody who doesn't know what greenhouse gases are, really it doesn't mean something. But if we try and explain to them that this is what greenhouse gas is all about, and this is why it leads to climate change. Then, in a way, we are bridging the gap which is there. And do you think there's maybe two sides to this as well, in that a lot of marginalised communities are being excluded through this formal education barrier through language, but also that decision makers are losing out on, on valuable local and indigenous knowledge in this, in this transition? Yes, I feel that that is actually the key because most of the mitigation and adaptation strategies, for example, that are coming up from research scientists, they only consider what they think is the challenge or the problem in a particular community. But the inclusion of local and indigenous knowledge is also key to making sure that those adaptation strategies can be utilized by the local communities. Uh, for example, there is uh, the early warning systems of climate change in Malawi, where the government provides early warning systems to say, uh, this year we might have no more rains or higher than no more rains. Yes, that is true, but there are also some ways in which the local indigenous knowledge can help. For example, there are some uh, indigenous native plants that when the communities look at them, they know that probably this year there's going to be a drought or there's going to be too much rain. So when developing these adaptation and mitigation strategies, we also need to include that indigenous knowledge. Because if you tell them that there is a predicted drought this season, and we are also seeing that this plant is visible as well. So the local communities will actually know and they'll they will feel included in the, the strategy because you are actually telling them of something they know, including the scientific knowledge. So it's something they can easily relate to. And is this something you see as well, Charles, where we don't give enough credit to, to that local knowledge? Is this something that, that you've seen in your experience too? Yeah, because we are excluded from the, the process of making knowledge, it is an extraterrestrial gap. Uh, regarding what is our community knowledge. I can give a quick example. I study economy in, in, in my university and we were studying the lack of working force in the 19th century in Brazil. And the professor said that the slaves that had just been freed do not wanted to work because they preferred not working. And 
I said to him that this was very racist and probably they wanted to work but the people would not hire them because they believed that the workforce of white people were more viable than the workforce of black people and I could see in his eyes that he had never thought about that. This argument that the black people do not want it to work it is in one of the most famous economics books in Brazil. This gap of communication goes all the way to the top. When we are not included in the decision-making, into the, the, the knowledge-making, you do not tell the full story. When you try to make environmental law to change climate change and you do not include the, the people that will be affected by that law, there's a tremendous big, big gap that prevents this, this law to be reinforced. And this is something that you're doing a lot of work around in general just now, Charles, isn't it? Is uh, trying to bring people together around around COP26. Could you tell us a little bit more about the, the, the campaign group that you have uh, working just now and what it is that you're aiming to do? I'm very happy to say that I found brothers and sisters, two from marginalized communities and that has the same goal as I do to reclaim these posts in, in, in high places. We have persons from indigenous communities, from favelas, as I am, from uh, small islands in the Caribbean. I think it's the beauty of United for Climate Action, the, the group I'm working with today, because we, instead of fighting alone, of fighting my fight alone, we decide to work together as a group to get into COP and to get our voices heard and, and to contribute with our knowledge. There's also, and I know it's it's something that we feel feel here in the in Scotland in the UK a lot of the time, where people say, ah, people who live in poverty, they, they don't have the time to worry about climate, they don't care about, about climate or a greener world or anything like that. But inevitably, any time I'm in communities or back home, people absolutely care about it if you're willing to talk to them and talk on on normal human terms is this is this something i know emmanuel from your research you see is this something that you you think is a more general thing that we assume that people don't have the time or don't care about climate a little too much uh yes i do agree with that because it's it's just a norm where we think that as being as a scientist i'm the person who knows this but really just going to the local communities and chatting with them, one can actually understand the challenges they are facing. I would give an example. In southern Malawi, I had gone there to collect my data, and I was chatting with one of the local farmers, and I asked him, what is climate change? He responded to me that, well, I don't really know much about climate change, but I'll tell you that in the 1970s, when I was young, rainfall used to be starting from november to somewhere in april may but currently is starting from december to march so i think that is climate change and this is somebody who we think that doesn't know about climate change but he gives you that example and then you start realizing that the person really knows what they're talking about they're thinking that the local communities don't care about climate change i would say it's really something that has to change and that change should happen now because if it doesn't, then we are bound for catastrophic future. It, it is very interesting what Emmanuel just said, talking that people from marginalized communities do not 
care about the environment is the same as black people do not want to work. It's not a matter of we do not want to solve climate change. It's about the opportunities that are not given to us. They say they want us into the decision making, but they do not provide translators. They said they want us to make part of the decision making, but they do not feed us with the knowledge to start thinking about that. So guys, we've heard your thoughts on all of this. We've we've heard your, your powerful message. You want to be in the room with decision makers. You want to be in those spaces. You get into those spaces. What is it that you want to see? I, I want people to know that we have important things to say. We care about this a lot. I also want them to know that there is no solution to climate change without us. It cannot be about us without us in the room. I think that is the message I want to, to bring to COP. And Emmanuel, the same question for you. What's that, that one key message you want to give on climate justice to COP? I think as marginalized people, it's not that we do not understand what climate change is all about, but it's some of the policies that are being laid that are difficult for us. Because, for example, if we say reduce use of firewood, what we need to consider is why are we in the first instance utilizing firewood is because the areas where we are from that's the only source of fuel wood we have but how can we make sure that we are utilizing fuel wood in a sustainable way so if i'm able to go for cop 26 this is one of the things i would actually want to talk about to say what are the sustainable solutions to what we are doing what is the impact or what knowledge can we be given to make sure that we are using it in a sustainable way people who are who are listening to this who are interested in climate justice might be sitting thinking just now well what can i do to support this how can i promote climate justice what one thing would you say above all else that listeners can do to to help support your causes and climate justice more broadly yeah i i would like to say that I came out this way by myself, but this would not be true. I had a lot of help, lots of lots of lots of help to get where I am today. And most of these helps came from very little, little gestures. I think if you want to help things to change, you can help persons that you know that may be in need of something. This helps a lot. And Emmanuel, the same question. I think one of the key things is one has to be willing to learn, but also not being shy on action. I know there are local communities who are shy to say, well, some of the solutions you're telling us, we have tried them and they have failed. One shouldn't be shy to, to say that. And lastly, but not least is to ask questions and find peers who are interested in what you're doing. There is a proverb from where I come from, it says, a single person cannot carry a roof, but a group of people can actually rift or carry a roof. So basically, that is my message. Massive thanks to Charles Badea and Emmanuel Zuza. These climate conversations are from the Natural Environment Research Council and the Glasgow Science Centre. They are produced by Bespoken Media. <laughs>